0: You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen.
1: Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Thank you all for joining me today for our annual employment law update. During today's episode, I'll be highlighting some of the new legislative changes that will be going into effect January 1st, 2023. Stay with us to learn about new laws impacting wage and hour practices, Cal OSHA compliance, and tips on which policies you'll need to update in the new year. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
0: Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at Workplaces Everywhere.
1: Welcome back, everyone. A quick note before we get started. The legislative updates that we'll be discussing today impact private as opposed to public employers and employees. So let's get started. So the first thing I want to talk about is minimum wage increases. So effective January 1st of 2023, the minimum wage in California increases to $15.50 per hour. So this marks the first increase since 2017 that impacts all employers, regardless of the number of workers that are employed. And this increase also is going to impact pay requirements for exempt workers who have to be paid a salary of at least two times the current minimum wage. So this increase will raise the current salary threshold for an exempt employee to $64,480. Overtime for agricultural workers is also going to be impacted this year. So in 2016, Assembly Bill 1066 had created a timetable for ag workers to receive overtime pays so that they will gradually start to receive overtime pay on the same basis as workers in most other industries. So starting January 1st in 2023, employers with 25 or fewer employees are going to be required to pay overtime, which is one and a half times the regular rate of pay. So overtime will kick in after nine hours per day or 50 hours per week. So for these changes, employers, you should start preparing by auditing your current pay practices, both internally and with your third-party pay providers. A review of exempt positions should also be initiated, which is gonna ensure that you're compliant with the 2023 salary minimums. Also important to remember is that state law requires that California workers be paid the minimum wage in addition. So that's state law requirement and in addition to that some cities and counties in California have a local minimum wage that is in some cases higher than the state rate. So employers you need to keep this rule in mind and when faced with conflicting employment law standards An employer must follow the standard that is most beneficial to the employee. So what I suggest is that if you're not sure what the local minimum wage ordinances are, what they've changed to, UC Berkeley has put together this great detailed list of local minimum wage ordinances for all the cities, uh, counties in California. So you can go to UC Berkeley Labor Center uh, online and look at their detailed list. So backing up a little bit. Overall, some overall things about the new legislative period. Our COVID-19 state of emergency is scheduled to end in February 28th of 2022. um, But of note, several states, uh, Cal- uh, excuse me, Colorado and Oregon in particular, have already um, had their governors issue executive orders to extend their state of emergencies. So, depending on where we're at with our flu and COVID seasons coming up uh, in January, that could be extended. But as for right now, it's scheduled to end uh, February 28th of 2022. Out of the 1,166 bills sent to the governor for signature, 977 were signed and 169 were vetoed. 90 employment-related bills were signed with 27 vetoed. All of the bills, uh, except those designated as emergency measures or as otherwise noted as we go through today's program, are going to take effect January 1st, 2023. Our first category of changes are wage and hour and COVID-19. So we're gonna start with SB 1162, which has to do with pay data reporting and pay transparency. So the pay data reporting portion of SB 1162, it amends and expands employers' existing pay data reporting obligations to include both a mean and median hourly rates within all job categories by race, by race, ethnicity, gender, and it also imposes penalties on employers for noncompliance. So existing law provides that California employers who have 100 or more employees who file an annual federal EEO-1 report, an employer information report, are compliant with existing state pay data reporting mandates if they submit the EE-01 containing the same or substantially similar pay data. This bill, 1162, changes this practice and will instead require that qualified employers submit a pay data report directly to our new civil rights department, uh, the civil rights department, uh, formerly the DFEH. Now, the newly enacted statute also revises current submission timeframes, from on or before March 31st of each year to on or before the second Wednesday of May, 2023, and for each year thereafter on the same annual date. Private employers with 100 or more employees hired through labor contractors, this is a new provision. So if you're a private employer with 100 or more employees that you hire through a labor contractor, which is the Temporary Employment Service, will also be required to submit a separate pay data report for those employees within the same timeframe. Now, another significant change will no longer allow multi-establishment employers to submit a consolidated report. There are also civil penalties for non-compliance, which can quickly add up, as the statute now provides for a civil penalty not to exceed $100 per employee for an initial violation, And up to $200 per employee for any subsequent violations. Now, for pay transparency, the same bill, SB 1162, also revises existing pay transparency laws to now require an employer, upon request, to provide an employee the pay scale for the position in which the employee is currently employed. Additionally, those employers with 15 or more employees, 15 or more employees, are also going to be required to include. The pay scale information for a position in any job posting. Um, And that includes any postings managed by third parties, which are sometimes our online third party providers like Indeed.com, those sorts of things. Now, this also has uh, record retention provisions within the statute that require an employer to maintain records of the job title and wage rate history for each employee for the duration of their employment plus three years. After the end of the employment, so that's three years after the date of termination. So uh, employers should really begin company-wide revisions to all their job descriptions if you haven't started it yet to include pay scale information. And this will assure that all job postings include the required pay information and will also make it easier to provide pay information when it's requested by current employees. The any record retention policies should also be revised to make sure that um pay transparency records are being maintained in accordance with this new statutory requirement all right that's our wage and hour portion let's go to COVID-19 so AB 152 uh is our newest COVID-19 supplemental paid sick leave provision this statute continues with some exception the requirements of SB 1114, which expired as of September of 2022. So our new statute, AB 152, extends existing COVID supplemental paid sick leave benefits through December 31st of 2022. The bill extends existing provisions for employers with 25 employees, granting qualified workers who were unable to work or telework 80 hours of total leave split between two different leave banks so again, this is the same, so up to 40 hours of leave where the employee or a family member is subject to quarantine or an isolation period related to COVID-19, or the employee has been advised by a healthcare provider to isolate a quarantine due to COVID-19, or where the employee is attending an appointment for themselves or a family member to get a vaccine or get a booster, Um, Or the employee is experiencing symptoms or caring for a family member who's experiencing symptoms related to a COVID-19 vaccine or booster that's going to prevent them from working. Now, for each vaccination or booster, employers may limit the total of paid sick leave to three days or 24 hours unless the employee provides verification from a healthcare provider that the employee or their family member continues to experience symptoms related to COVID-19 or the booster. Or if the employee themselves is experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, then um, that's also a reason if they're seeking medical diagnosis, um, they get time off for that, or their child, they're caring for a child whose school or place of care is closed or otherwise unavailable for reasons related to COVID-19 on the premises. That's the first leave bank. The second leave bank is up to 40 additional hours of leave. If the employee or a family member for who the employee is providing care, test positive for COVID-19. So in this instance, where an employee tested positive, an employer can require the employee to submit uh, to a diagnostic test on or after the fifth day after the test was taken and provide documentation for those results. If the test is positive, the employer can also require the employee to submit to a second diagnostic test within no less than 24 hours. And of course, the employer is required to make such tests available at no cost to the employee. And where the employee requests additional leave because a family member who they're providing care for um, tests positive, an employer may require the employee provide documentation for that family member's test results before paying the additional leave employers have no obligation to provide additional supplemental paid sick leave to an employee who refuses to provide documentation of their own or the family member's test results, or where an employee refuses to submit to the employee's request for that second diagnostic test. Uh, Employees are not, of course, required to exhaust the first 40 hours of leave, which they're entitled to before using the second 40 hours. Those are just two separate banks that you pull from depending on the different circumstances. And a special note that the statute does not provide additional leave for employees who've already used up their full 80-hour allotment prior to September 30th, 2022. So it's also important that Employers, remember uh, that uh, if you're qualified, a qualified employer, you remain subject to Cal OSHA's COVID-19 emergency temporary standards or Cal OSHA, the aerosol transmissible disease standards as applicable, those still remain in effect. So there's one other thing that AB 152 does. It establishes uh, what the governor's office is, uh, the governor's, it establishes a new department. Um, so it establishes something called the Office of Business and Economic Development. Uh, it's called GO-Biz. Within GoBiz, the California Small Business and Nonprofit COVID-19 Relief Grant Program is going to be initiated to assist small businesses who are incurring costs associated with providing this supplemental paid sick leave related to COVID. You have to meet certain quali- qualifying criteria Uh, For example, currently employing between 26 and 49 employees, and you have to be operating before June 1st of 2021. Um, You also are going to have to provide some tax documents as requested. This relief is for actual costs incurred for supplemental paid sick leave provided by qualified small businesses or nonprofits between the time period January 1st, 2022 and December 31st of 2022. All right, we have some other COVID uh, changes for um, exposure notice. So AB 2693, this statute provides some COVID-19 related relief to employers in that it eliminates current notice requirements to local public health agencies in the event of a COVID-19 outbreak and will no longer require California Department of Public Health to post workplace information That's of course received from local health agencies about COVID 19 cases and any outbreaks. Now, while existing, while it extends existing exposure provisions until January 2024, the bill does modify current employer notification requirements in the following ways. First off, in the event of potential COVID 19 exposure, employers may now comply with any existing notice requirements by displaying prominently a notice um, in all places where notices to employees concerning workplace rules or regulations are customarily posted. The notice has to include the dates on which the employee with a confirmed case of COVID was at the work site within the infectious period and the location of the exposure. And then notices have to be posted for 15 days And an employer is going to have to keep a log of all the dates the notice uh, was posted. It has to be maintained and presented to the labor commissioner if it's requested. So um, if you're a big question with this is what about if if all of our stuff is online, if we're 100% remote, then you would simply post the notice on your company's intranet um, or where it is on your system that you post notices where employees are told to go and look on a regular basis for company updates. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to keep moving through the rest of these legislative updates when we come back. So stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Take a step toward bringing our country and community together. Start a meaningful conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash step. A message from StoryCorps Love Has No Labels in the Ad Council.
1: If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back everyone to our annual legislative update. We just got through talking about some wage and hour issues um, and some COVID-19 updates. Now we're going to switch and talk a little bit about privacy rights. AB 2091 is, um, is a new disclosure of information statute that's focused on reproductive health and it is effective as of september 27 2022 ab 2091 prohibits employers and healthcare plans from releasing information that would identify or relate to a person seeking or obtaining an abortion except pursuant to a subpoena unless the subpoena is based on another state's laws that would interfere with an individual's abortion rights. So employers may wanna consider updating their existing benefits policies as a way of notifying employees that the company is complying with this new statutory privacy requirement. So if you haven't done that yet, you might wanna consider that. All right, moving on to some things impacting our uh, discrimination, harassment, retaliation policies. The first one is AB 2088, and that is discrimination in employment by the use of cannabis. So this is a disclaimer. This bill does not take effect until January 1st of 2024. The bill does not apply to an employee in the building and construction trade. And it does not apply to applicants or employees hired for positions that typically require federal government background investigations or security clearance in accordance with any specific regulations issued by the US Department of Defense or or equivalent uh, regulations that would be applicable to other agencies of similar bent. So AB 2088 will make it unlawful for an employer to discriminate in hiring, termination, or any terms and conditions of employment or otherwise penalize an individual if that discrimination is based on the individual's use of cannabis off the job and away from the workplace. So the statute specifically prohibits employment-related decisions based on a drug screen test that finds the person to have, and you have to forgive me, I'll probably mess this up, non-psychoactive cannabis metabolites, NCMs, in their blood, hair, urine, or other bodily fluids. So in other words, forgive the pun, employers are not gonna be able to weed out applicants or employees based on drug tests that report a finding of metabolized TCH in the body. So, according to the legislative findings, that it says the THC, of course, is the chemical compound in cannabis that can indicate impairment and cause psychoactive effects. However, they found that once metabolized and stored in the body as NCM, The THC no longer is an indicator of any current impairment, but merely an indicator of past consumption. So this bill confirms the employer's rights nonetheless to conduct drug screening by maintaining that nothing within the statute permits an employee to possess or to be impaired by or to use cannabis on the job or affects the rights or obligations of an employer to maintain an existing drug and alcohol-free workplace, or any other rights or obligations of the employer that's specified by federal law or regulation. That's because cannabis is still unlawful um, under federal law. It's not legal under federal law. So the statute also does not preempt any state or federal laws that require applicants or employees to be tested for controlled substance as a condition of employment, um, receiving federal funding or federal licensing benefits or entering into a federal contract because those are all affected. And now, although AB 2188 is not gonna take effect until January 1st of 2024, employers really should begin the process of auditing current screening methods to sort of ensure that their third-party testing vendors will be able to provide compliant tests by the 2024 deadline. So it's not saying that you can't test it's just saying that you it's going to modify the way that you test if you taste if you test pre-employment. So um a change in the law even though it it's not directly going to impact internal policies immediately is always a wonderfully opportune time to review, uh, to ensure compliance, and that your handbooks and your safety policies and your procedures are keeping pace with uh, current company practices and the changes in law. All right, moving to our next statute, which is HR 4445. This is the Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021. This is a federal mandate. On March 3rd of 2022, President Biden did sign this new law, uh, which limits the use of arbitration agreements and class action waivers for allegations of sexual harassment and or sexual assault. So HR 445, which is known as the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021, allows for an individual to invalidate pre-dispute arbitration agreement that would otherwise prevent them from filing a lawsuit in civil court alleging sexual assault or sexual harassment. Now, specifically, the act provides that no pre-dispute arbitration or class action waiver will be valid or enforceable under federal or state laws with respect to a case alleging sexual assault or sexual harassment. So employers who have not yet updated their existing anti-harassment policies and practices should again take the opportunity to do so as we head into this new year. SB 523 is the Contraceptive Equality uh, Equity Act of 2022. So this bill is uh, going to expand current Fair Employment and Housing Act protection uh, protected classifications to include reproductive health decision-making. So reproductive health decision-making is defined now to include, but is not limited to, decisions to use or access a particular drug, device, product, or a medical service for reproductive health. SB 523 makes it unlawful for an employer to require as a condition of employment, continued employment, or a benefit of employment the disclosure of information relating to an applicant or an employee's reproductive health decision making. So look for expanded coverage of contraceptives by health uh, service plan contracts, health insurance policies, health benefit plans and contracts with CalPERS. Um, employers should update again existing anti harassment policies to include this new protected classification. Moving on to workers' comp and um, occupational safety, we have AB 1751, which has to do with workers' compensation, COVID-19 critical workers. So this statute was actually implemented at the outset of the pandemic, It's codified in California Labor Code section 3212.86, and it establishes a disputable presumption concerning illness or death that results from COVID-19. The statute defines injury to include illness or death resulting from COVID-19. It's effective until January 1st, 2023, unless it is extended. So under the statute, an injury occurs when an employee tests positive for or was diagnosed with COVID-19 within... 14 days after a day that the employee performed work at the employee's place of employment at the employer's direction and where that day was on or after March 19th of 2020 and on or before July 5th of 2020. So for employers with five or more employees, existing law also allows for a presumption of injury for all employees whose coworkers experience specified levels of positive testing at their place of employment. So AB-1751 extends the provisions of the existing California Labor Code section 3212.86 until January 1st of 2024 and makes them applicable to an additional class of workers, for example, firefighters, police officers, and active firefighting members of various state agencies. All right, our next um, occupational safety standard that, uh, Uh, is new is AB 2068, which has to do with postings and various languages. So finding that the industries with the highest pandemic-related deaths on average employ more immigrants or citizens of other countries, the legislature enacted AB 2068 to enhance safety and uh, and health standards. So this statute amends existing law to require that an employer Post specified informational postings pursuant to a citation or order to include, at a minimum, various things. One, notice that Cal OSHA investigated and found one or more violations, uh, that the investigation resulted in a citation or order, which the employer is required to post, um, Notice that the employer is required to communicate hazards at the workplace and contact information for Cal OSHA and the Internet website where employees can search for citations against their existing employer. Now, such notices, in addition to English, are now must be made available in the top seven non-English languages used by limited English proficient adults in California. And that's going to be determined as the most recent American Community Survey, which is put out by the United States Census Bureau. There are a few other provisions in that, um, but you need to get on board with this. A violation of these enhanced provisions is going to be enforceable by a civil penalty. All right, leaves of absence. AB 1949, uh, employment bereavement leave, the statute amends the California Family Rights Act and requires that an employer with five or more employees must provide four up to five days of unpaid bereavement leave on the death of a family member to be used within three months of the date of death. So mandated leave is to be provided pursuant to any existing bereavement leave policy offered by the employer, so your existing policy, uh, where that existing policy provides for less than five days, at least five days must be provided. So employers are going to have to maintain employee confidentiality as it relates to bereavement. Employees may elect to use other leave balances, including accrued and available paid sick leave. Disputes, of course, Uh, Concerning any allegations of discrimination or interference relating to an individual's right to bereavement leave is now going to be included in the California Civil Rights Department's small employer family leave mediation pilot program. And note that accrued and available paid sick leave is not going to include for purposes of bereavement any COVID-19 supplemental paid sick leave. Um, It doesn't allow, it doesn't apply, and also is not going to apply to employees covered by any valid collective bargaining agreements that already provide for bereavement leave um, and other specified work conditions. One of the biggest questions about this is what happens if our policy provides for some paid and some unpaid. So all of this is saying is that if you have an existing policy that provides for paid, you just need to make sure that it provides up to at least five days. Uh, whether it's a combination, whether it's completely unpaid, or if it's a combination of a few days paid and a few days unpaid, you just have to make sure you're providing at least five days of unpaid bereavement leave. All right, AB 1041, which has to do with uh, California Family Rights Act and uh, the Healthy Workplaces, Healthy Families Act of 2014, both are impacted by this new statute. So the California Family Rights Act provides a qualified employee an opportunity to request protected leave up to a total of 12 work weeks in any 12-month period for family care and medical leave. Employees can take protected time off for their own serious health condition or, of course, that of a family member. Now, various changes over the years have expanded the definition of family care and medical leave under the California Family Rights Act to include leave-to-care for a child, parent, grandparent, grandchild, sibling, spouse, or a domestic partner who has a serious health condition. So this new statute further expands this existing definition to include what they're calling a designated person. A designated person is defined in the statute uh, to mean any individual related by blood or whose association with the employee is the equivalent of a family relationship such that the individual uh, can be identified by the employee at the time leave is uh, co- uh, requested uh, and employers may limit and it may limit the employee to only one designated person per 12-month period now ab 1041 also expands the definition of family member the same way under the healthy workplaces healthy families act of 2014 to also include this designated person for purposes of requesting uh, paid sick leave. Now, employers can also limit an employee under the Healthy Family, Healthy uh, or Healthy Family Healthy Workplaces Act um, to one designated person per 12-month period. So employers are gonna wanna go in and revise your current statutes, your current um, California Family Rights Act and your regular paid sick leave policy to reflect this new definition of family care and medical leave and to clarify the limits on identifying a designated person. One of the biggest questions people have about this one is designated person is vague. Uh, And in fact, the statute says that an employee doesn't even have to tell you who the person is at the time that they request the leave. So the legislative intent on this, the legislative notes, talk about the fact that California is recognizing that we are no, we are drifting away from being a society of the traditional nuclear family. Um, and with uh, seeking to um Uh, expand rights for the LGBTQ plus community and recognizing the fact that many members of those communities are shunned by their nuclear family, their blood families, and that they have expanded um, their circle of family members to those chosen uh, that they choose to embrace and to embrace their uh, they themselves. So what that means is, I think for employers, The focus really shouldn't be based on who is this person and who is this person to the employee, Uh, because the state has intentionally made this very, very broad. Um, It's meant to be all encompassing. Um, So to not only include blood, but those that we consider to be our people our chosen tribe. And so I think for this one, it's more important as an employer that you simply focus on your responsibilities and obligations as an employer to provide the leave and focus less on who is this actual person and who are they to the employee and focus on it that way so you're not gonna run afoul of the statutes, obligations to actually provide the leave. You don't wanna get hung up on the details. So moving on, SB 1044, Um, talks about emergency conditions in employment and has to do with retaliation. So SB 1044 creates a new statute prohibiting an employer in the event of an emergency condition from taking or threatening adverse action against an employee for refusing to report to or leaving a workplace or a work site within the affected area because the employee has a reasonable belief that the workplace or the work site is somehow unsafe. So this prohibition includes preventing an employee from accessing their mobile or other communications device to seek emergency assistance, assess the safety of the situation, or to communicate with a person to confirm their safety. Under the statute, an emergency condition is defined. It's defined as either conditions of disaster or extreme peril to the safety of persons or property at the workplace or worksite caused by natural forces or a criminal act, and or uh, in order to evacuate a workplace or a work site, a worker's home, or the school of a worker's child due to natural disaster or a criminal act. So of course, in California, our natural disasters tend to be earthquakes, fire, um, and of course, criminal acts can be sort of an active uh, active shooter situation that I- employees would want to be able to contact their kids or to go to the site and do that. So um, this allows, uh, uh, confirms an employee's right to to seek safety or to confirm safety of those. So the definition though does not include um, a health pandemic. So I think that's important for a lot of people to understand as well. Now for an employee to have a reasonable belief that the workplace or the work site is unsafe, um, it has to be that under the circumstances that are known to the employee at the time, so in the law, we call that a reasonable person. The reasonable person would conclude that there's a real danger of death or serious injury if that person enters or remains on the premises. So employees are required to notify their employer before refusing to report to or before leaving the workplace or the work site. And the provisions of the statute would not apply in a situation where the emergency condition or conditions that pose the imminent and ongoing risk of harm to the workplace or the worksite, the worker or the worker's home, have ceased to exist so for this is another one employers you should consider updating existing safety or emergency policies to reflect these new protections all right well that is all that we have time for today that's our show i want to thank you all for joining me i hope you find this helpful i also want to thank my radio angels james and the nave at night and our workplace perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar.